look at your little you two cup you're so hilarious <laughs> i was like trying <laughs> i was like trying to sneak it in while you're <laughs> you brilliant freak <laughs> I know we're only on episode four, but are you guys already over that? <laughs> anyway, I'm your host extraordinaire, Phoebe Lynn Robinson. Before we get into the episode, I just want to do a lovely shout out to Gavin Turk because that theme song is everything. I think it sums me up perfectly. I'm sensual as hell. I'm chill as hell. You're chill as hell? Excuse me, sir. Ma'am. <laughs> Ma'am. Anyway, Gavin Turk is a very incredible like singer, just cool, bomb-ass chick. So check out her music wherever you get your music. I mean, don't go to Napster. Is Napster still around? No, that that's... I mean, it might be, actually. I haven't actually checked. I'll, I'll check in a minute, but I haven't used Napster since I was like... <laughs> 13 when you first discover the internet and you're like oh napster free music and then obviously and then porn no (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna mention the fact that the whole uh mp3 era where free music all got shut down because that because of fucking lars ulrich is that his name that's the guy from Metallica. Metallica. Wasn't he one of the people who was like, I don't want no stinking MP phrase? First yeah. of all, he's not. <laughs> I mean, sure, he was like that, but it was more that everyone was getting free music and the artists weren't getting any money. Oh, yeah. So actually, Lars was right. Sure. <laughs> You guys, of course, I'm talking to my co-producer, my editor, the love of my life, with a quite delightful penis. Babe. <laughs> What's been... These intros are getting pretty wild, babe. I'm not going to lie. I'm enjoying them less and less. Oh, are you really British, Bagel? Bollocks. <laughs> Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> okay, you guys, we have so much to get into today. As you probably saw from the episode description, I'm interviewing... Are, it- are you French? Yeah. Oh, okay. I watched um, Hamilton. Oh. And <laughs> <laughs> I saw David Diggs mm-hmm. do a French accent. So I was like, oh, wee oui, wee. Oui. Description. Yeah. So I think I can pass for a French person. No? Um, You'll probably be more like Tom Cruise in the latest Mission Impossible where he's just like, 
Je suis désolé. And you know that took like three takes. Je suis désolé. Is that how you say it? Je suis désolé. Je suis désolé. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like this podcast is just a cover for me to try out different accents and I'm not good at any of them. Pretty much, yeah. So let's get to today's episode. <laughs> I'm interviewing Jamila Jamil. And because we're talking about um, just weight and activism and mm. I weigh her, I don't even want to call it like a campaign. It's not a campaign. Maybe it's a movement is the yeah. right word. Not only the, the website, but the podcast and open up this dialogue for men, women, non-binary people, anybody who wants to come talk about like how they think of themselves. Mm. Um, against what society tells us to think about ourselves. And I thought before we got into that conversation, which was so delightful and really, really great, um, and she was in LA. So it was like so cute to like kind of connect again, like across coast. I would like to say, what did you think about your bloody body when you were a little kid, Bake Off? Me? Yeah, you. I mean, I've always had um, body positivity issues, I'd say. Really? I've, I've never I've never been confident about my body ever. Really? Even when you were a kid, what do you think brought that on? It's the whole I think the locker room of your high school kind of thing mm. where you have all the jocks in just like they've been out playing rugby and I yeah. I always put got put in like the secondary kind of physical education classes where yeah. they're just like oh yeah just throw on this bib and just pretend to play basketball for an hour while all the actual Aww. athletic people will go and play rugby. Dang. But as a kid, like when you were 10, mm. did you, what did you think about your body? Were you sort of judging it already at that point? Or? No, I don't think I was that young. It was more when I hit puberty and you are more around, you, you watch the other people around you become more athletic. Mm. And I think when I was a lot younger than that, it's never really yeah was an issue. And then do you feel like, I mean, I guess I was, I'm kind of in the same boat that I really sort of judged myself because like I had no boobs, mm. I had no curves, which is like what you're supposed to have as a woman. And I was, you know, I don't know, I think I weighed like 98 pounds in high school. Like I just could not put on mm. weight. Is that like 10 stone? I'm not sure of the is that, conversion. Is that three stone? <laughs> it's definitely not three stone. <laughs> but at what, at what sort of age was that that you really started noticing? Oh, God. I mean, I think I started hating my body when I was like 13. Like legit. Mm. I was like, I don't look like Halle Berry. I don't look like Iman. I don't look like Tyra Banks. Like, do you remember that movie Swordfish? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. remember when like Halle Berry like took her top? Of course. <laughs> And she and it wasn't even like a hot scene. She was literally just lying down, and her big old titties were just mm -hmm. like because gravity was doing what it do. So her titties sort of like slid to the side. Mm -hmm. And I was like, my dream one day is to have my titties slide to the side, and they never did. No. And I felt like I was okay. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> but I just was like. I remember like how that was such a big deal in the States that like she basically was like, if you want me to take my shirt off, I, you're going to have to pay me extra. Mm -hmm. And it was just such a like the discussion about like how beautiful she was. And I just felt like I was so not that I had like acne and I just was not like what you considered womanly in that way. 
And so, yeah, I think I'm much better about the way that I look now. And I really do appreciate my body for all the things that it allows me to do. Like go on like walks, like go on that hike that we did upstate Mm -hmm. and like, you know, do like fun, like physical activity stuff. And, but yeah, I definitely was really, really down on my body for a really long time, really long time. I think the older I get as well, the more Mm -hmm. accepting of myself I am. And that's something I think a lot of people struggle with mm-hmm. and it takes time. And it's just, it's understanding, yes, I may not have the body I always wanted, but my body's still good. Yes. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Bake Off. What do you, okay, before we, we get into the episode, what do you, name three things you like about your body now mm. that you didn't like before. That I didn't like before. Mm-hmm. Probably my shoulders. You do have good shoulders. Mm, my nose, maybe? Your nose is cute. Oh, she's so kind. <laughs> um, and my teeth. Yes. I feel like because the stereotype is like, oh, British people have like horrendous teeth. So I'm sure overseas, did that make, did that cross over, over the pond? Of course. Yeah. And <laughs> the stereotype, unfortunately, is correct. Oh, no. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Um, anyway, I guess for me, thank you for asking what I like about my body now. Um, <laughs> um, I think I really like my thighs. Like I like that, like, especially when I uh, work out I'm on a hiatus from working out. Um, it's not like a job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on, I'm on a, a vacation. I've taken a leave of absence from working out. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, but I like when I work out and I feel like muscle really builds in my thighs mm-hmm. kind of the fastest. So mm-hmm. they get bigger. So I really like that. I feel strong and powerful. Um. Oh, my gosh. This is like kind of hard. Isn't it? Yeah. You're like, oh, dang. I think I've fallen in love with my hair again mm-hmm. during the core, and I think I really, truly love my hair in a way that I've never had in the 35 years I've been alive. Mm. Um, and something I didn't like, I mean, I guess, yeah, you know what? I don't think I love my boobs yet, but I think we are like, we are good friends. Yeah. Getting to know each other better. Yeah, because I used to be like, they're so tiny, and now I'm like, yeah, they're small, who cares? Yeah. I have couture titties, like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I could be in Cleveland Fashion Week. Catwalk titties. <laughs> Catwalk titties. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I can't think of a better segue than Catwalk titties. Um, <laughs> so I'm really excited for everyone to listen to this episode. My conversation with Jamila Jamil is so fantastic. I mean, many of you know her or probably first got to know her stateside because fantastic show the good place um and you know also i think her advocacy online especially she really got into focus because of her work in terms of um the flat tummy tea stuff Mm. and like how the kardashians and a lot of sort of 
influencers were promoting this stuff, which is so not good for your body and really just yeah. horrific sort of dietary stuff. Um, and her outspokenness in a world where it's still not encouraged for women to reject any sort of thing that promotes just like starving yourself or making yourself feel not great. Um, and so she really started this thing called I Way and she really was just sort of sick of all the ways that women were constantly kind of being made to feel like they're not good enough. So she was like, I weigh like all these experiences. Mm -hmm. Like it's not my, my pounds. It's the things I've gone through in my life. And so I think today is going to be such a wonderful conversation. She was so delightful. And I really do this thing that I do all the time with you where I really just leaned into my British accent. And <laughs> she, she powered through that, but I think it's going to be a, ra a, a great conversation. The advice questions were wonderful. So without further ado, y'all, listen to me and Jamila Jamil. I thought I was going to like pause and do like something really cool, but then I did. But you didn't. Okay, bye. Hi, Jamila. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for joining me on Black Frasier. Black Frage, as people mm -hmm. like to say in the streets. And people, I mean me. In street, I mean my living room. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I'm so glad that you could do the podcast. We've, we met, what, 2018 through the DMs. I think yes. it was through Instagram DMs. Yeah. I think I slid into yours. You yeah. slid into mine. I can't remember, but we just, uh, friendship bloomed and I feel like we always find ways to make each other laugh. And, yeah. um, especially when we do really super dorky things, like when <laughs> I was trying to show you making, I was trying to show you a video of me making a three ingredient, um, dessert and I severely burned my hand. I'm haunted <laughs> by memories of that. Was <laughs> that on Marco Polo? Yeah, it was on Marco Polo. <laughs> <laughs> Ah. You and Bake Off. He has not earned that title. <laughs> <laughs> he's a much he's a much better baker than me. Yeah. That's not, has, it's not has a high bar though, better? is it, Phoebes? Like <laughs> <laughs> Has the accent gotten better? Do I sound a little bit like do I sound like someone from the UK? You sound like an English person with marbles in their mouth. <laughs> That's what you sound like. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you're getting better or if my toler tolerance is getting higher. <laughs> I don't know, but it is. I feel like there is a slight improvement from 2018 for sure. Yeah. I think living with Bake Off in confinement has definitely improved your pronunciation. Ooh. But it's just you speak a Surely bit like you've got some shit in your mouth. <laughs> So should I like open my mouth wider? Does that help that, a little bit? Would that not pronounce the end of words? <laughs> <laughs> what if I this podcast like, I've heard your boyfriend speak and he has a particularly beautiful voice and accent so he this does. does him no justice <laughs> so I mean actually this podcast is just a trick for you to teach me how to have a better yeah. accent like I have no questions no. there's no conversation it's just yeah. this <laughs> um, no, in all seriousness, um, what I want to talk to you about today. So as you guys know, who are listening slash watching, um, each week, each episode has a particular theme. And I think one of the things that I instantly fell in love with you, even before we started communicating and chatting and hanging out and texting and all those things, was um, your activism and your vocalness and I way in particular, which I think is so necessary in the world 
always um, to kind of undo or help undo the sort of destructiveness that the patriarchy has enforced on people for centuries and centuries and centuries and decades and all those things. And so I really just want to sit down with you today and chat about Iway a little bit. And I feel like whenever someone starts a movement that has so much passion and, and with the sort of instincts to improve the world for the better permanently. I always want to go back to sort of hearing like, what is your sort of Batman Begins origin story of how, <laughs> of how you were like, you know what? I'm not like, yes, in my life, I'm going to stand up for this, but I want to make this a bigger thing that can become a community so we can all stand up together. Mm-hmm. Well, I, it's been a long road for me. I think it's really funny when people think that I just sort of picked up activism Mm-hmm. as if it was takeout two years ago uh, <laughs> in the middle of playing Tahani on NBC. Uh, I, uh, I've been in this for 15 years now. I've been an activist. Specifically, it started with eating disorders and fat phobia for about a decade. And I, uh, all right, so I'll take you back to the very beginning, which is that I had anorexia from maybe the age of about 11 or 12 uh, onwards, for on and off for about 20 years. And that was not only triggered by celebrity culture and pop culture, but it was massively, massively influenced and nurtured by our society. You know, it was the time of uh, heroin chic. It was the time where actresses would only be asked about how they maintain their insane thinness. And also there were almost no black actresses and zero South Asian actresses. So you didn't see people who also come from a background of slightly typically more curvaceous bodies. I wasn't seeing any of that. And the women who were making it on who were from ethnic backgrounds were forced to slim to that same typically white size and they would have very Eurocentric features. So I grew up thinking that there was something so wrong with me, wrong with my face, wrong with my body. I hated that I had hips. I hated my breasts. I hated everything. And that was so perpetuated by the bad role models we had out there. You had massive actresses talking about how they eat naked in front of the mirror to make sure that they don't overindulge because they can watch themselves bloat or saying that they eat Mm. 600 calories a day, which is not enough to sustain a human being. And Kate Moss talking about how nothing tastes as good as thin feels. And I'm like, okay, well, ice cream, Mm. donuts, pizza, uh, cake. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, But that was a big impact. It had a big impact on me. And so, you know, Mm. when I entered, I guess, sorry, I'm not being clear. Hang on a second. Um, So (laughs) when I was 17, I got hit by a car and I broke my back and I hurt my body so severely and I couldn't move for over a year uh, at all. I was in bed. Mm. And so I think that gave me a newfound respect for my body and a wake up call as to how precious it is and how much I had not been grateful for it and how much I had taken it for granted. And it led to me down a kind of rabbit hole of questioning why, why I have thought it was uh, necessary or okay to treat my body the way I had been doing. So, you know, I was sometimes eating one red pepper a day that I was slicing into little pieces <sighs> and I would eat it yeah. throughout the day out of a sandwich bag. You know, I'm, it's amazing that I survived and uh, I didn't menstruate for years. I don't even know if mm. I'm totally fertile now. Just did so mm. much damage during those years. So at 19, I started writing letters to big newspapers and magazines trying to expose the fashion industry and all these different systems that oppressed us. But I didn't get very far because I was 19 and brown and had no platform. Then mm. in my 20s, I got a job on television. And that's when I started to use all of my outlets to start talking about this issue and talking about sizeism. Mm-hmm. Then I became 
uh, much fatter at 26. And this was while I was a radio DJ. I wasn't a host. I wasn't a model. And yet I got hounded by the paparazzi for about six months who would call me a fat C word. And that C word is not cake. It rhymes with bunt. Um, and they would taunt me outside my house all the time. And my ass was on the cover of magazines, as in the picture of my ass. I wasn't just sticking my ass on the cover of magazines, um, but pictures fat shaming me. And it was so weird. They were like, the pictures were creating this narrative of me the whole time where they were trying to frame me as uh, sad and lonely and miserable. They would only take pictures when I was looking down or like maybe had just a sort of resting bitch face, never all the happy times I was having. It was actually a great year and I was super in love and making, you know, great progress in my career. But the story being told in pictures to the public were I've gained weight, therefore I am miserable, alone and a failure. And so that's when I started to go die hard into fat activism and spoke at parliament, which is the equivalent of our White House, I guess, here, um, and released clothing lines and started really railing against our industry. But again, because I was fat at the time, nobody would listen to me the way they do now because we don't listen to fat women. We call them bitter and jealous and lazy. And so I got a little bit further than I would have hoped. Sorry, I made a little bit of progress, but nowhere near as much as I did when I started saying the exact same things as a thin, privileged person. And that's the mm-hmm. problem with our society. I completely understand when people get pissed that I get made, I get centered in this conversation, but this is how our disgusting system works. We center the privileged to a degree. It's interesting. So they listen. What was frustrating is they listened to me as though I, not only I had never said those words before, words I've been saying for over a decade, but they, they listened to me as if no one had ever said these words before, whereas there have been fat activists for decades talking about these very same things that they just ignored and cast away. And so for a minute I was listened to, and then I started being shouted down by the same journalists who had hailed me in the beginning, saying that I was actually too slim and I had too much pretty privilege to speak out on these issues. So I noticed a very interesting pattern of we silence the marginalized and we silence them and say that they are to blame for their own circumstances. And then we Mm -hmm. silence the privileged and say they are too privileged to speak out about these issues. So therefore, no one gets to speak at all. And so I guess my, my journey has been to try and, you know, over the course of the last couple of years, people have been saying from the very beginning when I only had 16,000 Instagram followers, pass the mic, pass the mic. I didn't have yeah. a mic to pass. I could pass you a hairbrush and you could pretend it's a mic. <laughs> and so you have to get the mic, especially as a brown woman, especially as a South Asian woman where we're so underrepresented. But all of it, I had to get the mic, which I now have, I believe, in order to pass it. And so I have this sort of 5 million across platform uh, following and I'm using that almost exclusively to amplify the voices of the people that I think should be listened to rather than me. So it's been, that's my journey and that's where I'm at now, but just took me a minute to get here. 15 years. No, that's of course. And it shows the work that you put in. And, you know, I want to go back to the nineties and heroin chic, because I do think that that was here stateside. That was so huge. And, you know, I think in the black community, it was more advantageous to be curvy and have boobs and butt. And I didn't have any of that, any of that. I was very thin. But I'm I'm wondering about being a teenage girl and the way you and your friends, you talk about eating and your bodies and the stuff that you're absor- ab- absorbing and then, you know, reproducing out into the world. Like I look back at myself when I was younger and I was just so like, if someone said that I looked 
skinny that day. I was like, oh my God, thank you so much. Like I felt Mm -hmm. so much pride in that. And I think that, you know, as adults in our thirties and adults in general tend to forget that the way that we think now that programming happened when we were younger. So I'm curious Mm -hmm. as to like your friend circles, like what sort of things were you guys sort of talking about in terms of your bodies? I don't really have any friend circles. Uh, I was not popular at school. Uh, I am just, um, I'm just a bit much. I've always been a bit much. (laughs) I I just wasn't, I've never been a super socially uh, adept human being, I guess. It takes Mm -hmm. a specific type of weirdo to love me, which is why you do. Uh, (laughs) um, But I was just surrounded by it at school. You know, at school, having an eating disorder, something like bulimia was a badge of honor. You know, I don't know a single girl in my entire school who had a healthy relationship with food. There was this one girl who I used wow. to sit next to in maths who used to bring in her weighing scale and stand on it during lunch to see if it would move upwards because she was too little to understand <sighs> that that's not how weight works anyway, that yeah. just physical physical weight doesn't eventually uh, add to your actual fat gain. But she would sit, sit there and obsessively eat and drink standing on a scale. And you're just like, she weighed maybe... Five stone, I don't know mm. what that is, like maybe 75, 80 pounds. Mm-hmm. She was practically dying right in front of us. And that was just, there was this huge queue in the girls' toilets after, after lunch every day because people would be taking turns to go and throw up. It was mm. just so normalized and encouraged. And you're so right about the way that, like, up until so recently, we saw, oh, my God, have you lost weight as such a compliment Therefore, meaning gaining weight is the ultimate failure. And also this fucking brag that I hate so much about that I think started in the 90s of, oh, I can eat so much and yet I'm so skinny. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that kind of started, I think, in Hollywood where they would have the skeletal actress eating cake and all the guys being like, she's such a pig. And that was the (laughs) ultimate badge of honor is that if in front of guys you can eat loads of food but still be so skinny. And so that was, I think, a big part of the rise of bulimia was that weird, humble, not humble brag, even just a weird brag that lives up until now. You still see influencers eating these ginormous pizzas, allegedly, or posing next to ginormous pizzas that you know they don't eat. Victoria's Secret models talking about how many like cheeseburgers they eat the night before the show. It's like we've heard countless reports of the fact that a lot of them don't even not only don't eat, but they don't drink water for like two days Mm. before the show. So I think all of that is like a further way of shaming someone, kind of shaming them not only about their body, but also about their metabolism. We're just so warped. And it just, to me, has always felt like a distraction tactic. It's a perfect diversion of thought that will stop particularly women from progressing and becoming equals in our society. If we are obsessed with our appearance, that's time consuming. It means we wake up earlier to do our hair and our makeup. It means we get less sleep. We're eating less than we need to. We're exercising sometimes more than we're supposed to. And I think that that is valuable minutes in our day and time and energy spent where we're not then growing our mental health and our happiness and our bank accounts Mm. and our independence and our families. We're just trying to fit into this nonsense ideal that changes every decade. Can you even imagine if we told men every 10 years throughout history to dramatically change their entire appearance? They would tell us to go Mm -hmm. and fuck ourselves. Facial hair is as (laughs) far as we can just about move them. (laughs) <laughs> but women, so women's bodies are becoming more yeah. and more insane and now there's this weird mix of the sort of they want to have t- typically they want to have all these different features all at the same time so you're supposed to be skeletal now but with giant tits and a big bottom but skinny thighs and skinny arms it's just not how people's bodies work 
traditionally. Yeah. And yeah. so everyone's now having all this surgery, pumping all this dangerous shit into their bodies and drinking all these dangerous drinks that I guess I became known in America for calling out. Yeah, which I want to talk about because I think that that's very important, you know, and I remember sort of just seeing all these diet things sort of popping up on Instagram where I was just like, what? And everyone's wearing a waist trainer like, this is how I got my figure. And I'm like, huh? You got Mm -hmm. it from a strict diet, you know, a trainer and getting things tailored to show certain things or maybe make other things look smaller. And it really did see... Yeah, Photoshop. Yeah, exactly. And makeup and glam and all that stuff. And it became so pervasive. And I think you speaking out about it, like to your credit, you were saying, I'm not the first person to say this, Mm -hmm. but people are finally starting to listen. And I'm curious as to what you sort of the journey of being like, okay, I'm going to take on this toxic diet industry head on. I'm going to call them out and sort of the changes you were able to um, make happen because of that. So I wasn't really active on social media until mm-hmm. I had to start promoting The Good Place. So I wasn't aware of how pervasive the culture was. I thought yeah. it was all like pictures of avocado toast. That's all I'd heard, which is why I hadn't <laughs> bothered to join. I, and so once they made me really become active to promote the show, that's when I started to be targeted by algorithms like of pictures, you know, pressing that, that dangerous explore button because of my gender and my age, would just send me diet adverts and pictures of celebrities and how much they weigh. And it was always female celebrities. It was never men. I couldn't find any pictures of men and how much they weighed unless they were a UFC fighter. And I sure as shit couldn't find a picture of six businessmen the way I could. Mm. Because this all started hilariously in defense of the Kardashians. So what's happened to our relationship (laughs) since is, you know, it's unexpected. But uh, (laughs) I saw a picture of these businesswomen Whatever we think of them, that's what they've done. They've created an unprecedented empire. And the numbers written across their body wasn't their net worth. It was their weight. Mm. You could never find a picture of six businessmen who'd created billions amongst themselves with those numbers written across their bodies because it was so demeaning and unimportant. But to women, that is our entire value. So one day I just snapped and I wrote what I weigh on the internet, on Twitter. I was like, I weigh my financial independence, my relationships, my friendships, my love, my bingo wings, my uh, my eating disorder, all the things that I've overcome. I weigh the sum of all my motherfucking parts. Mm. And for some reason that resonated with people way more than I thought it would. And I realized that our culture is fed up. And within three days, I had 10,000 people posting me their I weighs. And now two years later, we have 1.1 million followers. And... We did this without a marketing team. It's just an organic Mm. space of people who are fucking pissed off and tired of being unheard and trodden over and marginalized. And it's not just about eating disorders now. It's about all mental health, race, gender, sexuality, disability, et cetera. And one of the things that, I mean, first of all, poetry snaps for that. Get that into the mic. (laughs) (laughs) But also, you know, I think one of the, key things about Iowa that I really admire and appreciate and and want to discuss a little bit is the fact that I think so often in life when we talk about things need to be changed, it's sort of like, okay, we cross off a to-do list and it's done forever. And I think what your community is doing is showing that this is a lifelong process Mm -hmm. of deprogramming and learning information and reaching out to other people. And I'm wondering if that was part of your mission statement behind Iowa to say like, you're not completed. You're always a work in process. So be careful with yourself. 
Yeah, well, I wanted iWay to be as an education platform. I mean, people have this mm-hmm. idea that I am the punisher. Like I am this <laughs> warrior who's going to go out and like kill and cancel people. That's never what I was trying to be. I was trying to be someone who just woke people up to sneaky tactics from that you know come via commercialism and materialism and and Hollywood and I wanted to wake us up I wanted to just call out the injustice and the problem and then provide resources for education I'm not coming I'm not the justice system do you know what I mean for celebrities or for corporations but I think people think I am my dms are just full of people saying can you call this out please can you speak out on this can you take this person down can you take this company down it's like this isn't I'm only one human being First yeah. of all, please also go to white people with bigger followings than me and also <laughs> ask them to do this. Not all of it come to me. But mm-hmm. also, I think that it's important that people understand that education is all the power we really need. We forget mm-hmm. that we control the market. We get to, to decide who the influencers are. We get to decide which companies are successful. For so long, we have been convinced that the market controls us. And women are 80% of the market. We are 80% of consumers. Mm. So that's why we are targeted the most so consistently all the time about every single part of our lives and our bodies. I mean, they're selling fucking earlobe plasty now. We have to worry about our Wait, what? I'm worried, I'm worried about, yeah. I think Chris Jenner was talking about it a couple of years ago. Like we, wow. we're supposed to have attractive earlobes. Like I'm worried about rape. I'm worried about a murder from someone I don't mm-hmm. know or someone I do know. I'm worried about equal pay and enough... And sort of resolving our inequity in this world. I don't want to worry about my fucking earlobes. This is why my little tin hat theory about the fact that it's a (laughs) patriarchal diversion tactic, I think, Mm -hmm. stands up. But I weigh as an education platform and I'm really proud of it. And I'm not the one doing all the educating. I'm normally Mm -hmm. the one learning publicly from people who are much smarter and more educated and more interesting than me. And <laughs> people don't like the fact that I'm comfortable learning publicly and making mistakes mm-hmm. publicly, but I I enjoy being the anti-celebrity who, Ooh, who yeah. will do that. Yeah, I love anti-celebrity. And I'm so glad you said um, learning publicly because I wanted to ask you a follow-up question about that. So I think we live, you know, you've been an activist for 15 years and you've sort of seen how the activism culture has changed and more for better and for worse. And I do think we are in a moment right now that does not allow for people to learn and then do better. It's sort of like you make this mistake or something that you believe that was inappropriate, offensive, incorrect. You now are learning, oh, that's not okay. But you don't necessarily, I think people are so ready to, to pounce and attack and not sort of allow people to get better and and grow and you know just like you like I had to learn that certain things about about weight like you aren't supposed to say or you shouldn't believe or actually unpack why you think that and mm-hmm. I think people sort of act like they've always been woke they, this is a woke olympics they've always known better and we all need to catch up and so I'm wondering from this time of you speaking out about weight and being an activist what have you appreciate about how activism has changed and what have you noticed has been a change that's not for the better? I mean, I I speak out about so many things now, like abortion Mm -hmm. rights, gender rights, etc. And in all of those things, I've watched the same patterns emerge. What I think is great is that social media exists so that Mm -hmm. social media has enabled movements to really mobilize and organize and people can't 
people aren't hidden away by the media anymore. Everyone has a say and and anyone can go viral with really important information. And we saw that recently with the sort of, with the, I guess it's kind of a civil rights moment within the black community that was able to not only be orchestrated nationwide, but worldwide. You had 200,000 people in Paris and Germany. This could never have happened without social media. People were really organized. And the same thing with Me Too, the same things with, uh, the same thing with Trans Lives Matter. So I think that that is an amazing thing in activism. And I also think that it's amazing that people care more than I've ever seen in my lifetime. And people actually actively want to be allies and they understand the concept of anti-racism or anti-fat phobia or anti-ableism, that if you are not actively anti a system of oppression, you are complicit in the system. Mm -hmm. And this is the first year where I feel like people really understand that. So I think activism has come an amazing way. And I feel like the voice of the people has started to overpower the voice of corporations in a way that we've never seen before. So I love that. I do think what we're seeing, I understand the root of the, I mean, there's so much vitriol and so much hatred and so much superiority culture going on at the moment. And I do think some of that comes from a place of people being fucking tired of waiting for powerful people to like wake up and mm. understand and utilize mm. their privilege and power and platforms more responsibly. So I get it. I do get why people are so ruthless now and they're just like one yeah. mistake and you're done, but it's not technically helpful. And mm. I feel like we sometimes misunderstand the difference between calling out and cancelling. Calling out means calling someone out, criticising them, pulling no punches, telling them what they're wrong. And you only do that if you actually think someone has the capacity to change. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what's the point? And cancelling is saying someone is gone and done and deplatformed and fired and thrown out of society and the key has been thrown away. They've been yeah. locked up and the key's been thrown away, sorry. So... I think calling out is hugely important and I don't think we have to be delicate in the way that we do it when someone really isn't listening. I think that that's a vital part of our evolution and development and I hate it when women are accused of being anti-feminist for calling each other mm. out. We have to call each other out in order to edit yeah. and in order to evolve. Um, but I think cancellation, calling for cancellation too soon sometimes isn't actually helpful because there are people who have loads of money and power that if we could just get them on side, they would be so helpful to us. So I think mm -hmm. sometimes we we try to bite the hand that feeds us in the fact mm -hmm. that we try to get rid of powerful people who, if they turned, I think could be amazing for our culture. We aren't mm -hmm. so far along in our progress yet that we have the ability to completely deny all allies just because they made one mistake. Or five mistakes, as long as they're actively trying to learn and educating people along with their journey. I think that's vital. We need accountability from people who want to be rewelcomed in society. We need mm -hmm. amends and reparations to be made. And I think we need them to publicly teach the people that they had poisoned with their misinformation before on how to be better. Does that make sense? Of course. No, okay. that was great. And it, it makes me think like it, you being in the spotlight, what sort of things do you feel like you've learned um, where that made you course correct and go, oh, okay, yeah, maybe I'll do that instead. I mean, one of the first ones was me thinking that because I'm a woman of color, my experience is v even vaguely similar to that of black women. I never thought that being actively anti-racist, what am I trying to say? was my job. I thought that was white people's jobs because I thought, no, we're mm. all in this together because we have the same mm -hmm. struggle. Like I've experienced racism. I've experienced violence over my background of being South Asian. Um, I get it. I understand your experience. And so I always used to conflate the two. And I had no idea how wildly offensive 
and ridiculous that was because the experiences are so different, especially in America. And I've really, really learned that not just from being told off or called out, but also from the friends that I have made here and understanding their experience in America. So that was one of the biggest ones of me realizing that you have to take way more care when you are having any kind of altercation or any kind of discussion with someone from a different community than yours, just because we are all marginalized, all marginalized experiences are not the same. And so I think that was one of the biggest learning curves is not is, is not thinking that my oppression then cancels out my need to be extra sensitive with other marginalized groups. Mm-hmm. That was a big wake up call. Um, other ones were, let me think. I mean, there have been a few. First of all, don't tweet at 3 a.m. Big one. <laughs> don't tweet about politics <laughs> at 3 a.m. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know. I think, I think, all of my public lessons, sorry, all of my all of my big lessons and learning curves have happened publicly, and there have been quite a few to the point where I can't even remember them all right now <laughs> because there are so many. <laughs> but I think mostly it's just the biggest thing I learned was not trying to communicate something incredibly serious and important on Twitter in 280 characters. That's one of the biggest things I learned is that it was arrogant to presume that people would understand what I meant especially Mm. me not understanding quite how much people misuse information or deliberately misunderstand or naturally presume I am an evil devil because I am a powerful person Mm -hmm. because so many people in power have so violently misused their privilege that I understand that I look like the enemy so why should anyone give me the benefit of the doubt um, and so me presuming that people would get what I mean when I don't use enough context and nuance has been the biggest thing for me. And so that's why I'm so happy to have a YouTube channel and a podcast and more like video footage in order to be able to fully explain myself. I think a lot of the times that I got into trouble were because I didn't explain myself fully because I tried to confine a huge statement to 280 characters like a fucking idiot. So <laughs> yeah. I'm not doing that anymore. I'm trying to mostly <laughs> speak in long form. So that I'm not misunderstood. Because also people try to, especially when you're a woman, and you know this, Phoebe, people try to deliberately misunderstand us and misconstrue what we're saying for clicks, for bait. It happens to me all the time. I've had to stop doing print interviews because journalists do that to me. So I was making it so easy for people by making these sassy little statements and (laughs) not explaining myself. So I think that was a really big learning curve. Yeah, and I also feel like we we sort of live in a world now where nuance is gone, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's part of the the fuel behind Twitter. Twitter's and social media in gen- general is not about nuance; it's about keeping us clicking and consuming information and getting outraged enough to keep coming back tomorrow, the next day, the next day. And I think what I Wei is trying to do, and what you are also trying to do, is show that no, 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 no. We can't ignore the gray. It can't just be black and white. We really have to dig in, get into the nuance. And I'm wondering, when you're having this sort of movement, this community, are you facing resistance towards your your instinct behind having nuance? Or are people willing to embrace having sort of a more in-depth conversation about body and diet and shame and all of that stuff? It depends which subject. I mean, I receive an insane amount of pushback. Mm-hmm. By the way, I realized one other thing I wanted to say that I learned, can I remember it? I just was thinking it, just to add to that, because I think it's important, is 
not feeling like you have to speak out on everything all the time when you don't even know what you're mm. talking about. Because that's, mm-hmm. that's technically actually a performative thing to do, that when people are pressuring you into speaking out on something, even if you're doing it just to, to please your 16 followers, it doesn't matter how big your following is, and you're, you want to show everyone how much you know, mm-hmm. or no, that you care about something. If you don't know what you're talking about, I think it's better to investigate it first. You know, when I first became known for speaking out on things, I started being asked on the spot, like doorstepped by journalists or people on, on the internet, like, what do you think about this? And I would panic and think, and I wonder if this happens to you as well, that you'd be like, fuck, if I don't say something about this, then they're going to think I either support the oppressor mm-hmm. or I don't care. So I would panic and speak out about things that I literally didn't understand. And that was really, really bad. And I wouldn't do my research. And so I think while you don't have to be an expert on anything, I think it's really important to do your research before you speak and not feel like you have to be vocal on everything. It's okay just to shut the fuck up sometimes, Mm -hmm. which has taken me a sweet two years to learn. (laughs) But I think it also leads, that happens, I think, because we are, people of color and the burden tends to be on people of color to sort of justify and explain and educate to people. Like I remember with all the Louis C.K. stuff that was happening. So what do you, what do you think about Louis C.K.? What hmm. I'm like, ask, ask the men in charge who sort of knew that he was a creep and didn't do anything. Ask them about Louis C.K. Like what, what do I, what, what do I need to change about? I don't need to change anything about comedy. I'm not the one in charge. And so I think there's sort of that expectation that we are sort of the the carriers of wisdom and we're going to say these words are just going to like fall over these white people's heads and be that magical like sort of ethnic person that's going to change their lives. And so I Mm. think it puts pressure on people like us or queer people in the spotlight to be like, well, you have to have a solution for every sort of problem that exists in the world, which like you said, when you're not well versed in in a subject matter that expectation feels silly. Um, so I, I think it's difficult. And I think by you having Iway be sort of a community that's also about educating ourselves as well as the world, I think you're allowing the space for, we don't have all the answers. That's not what it's about. It's about being curious and learning more. And so I'm, I'm wondering, since you started Iway, what have been kind of a couple of things that you've learned about the community that made you go, oh my God, I didn't know that, but I'm so happy I learned that now. So I think to answer your last question that I didn't answer because I went into your question before that, first of all, <laughs> I don't really get pushback when I use nuance. The more I, the mm. more context and nuance I bring, the happier people are and the more, the less we get distracted with the mistake because less mistakes have been made. So I feel like it's only been received well by my community and they really hold me to account. I do not have fans in in the concept of like people who just love every single thing I do and I fart and they applaud. Uh, They really, (laughs) really scrutinize my every word and my every action. And I'm so grateful for that. So I, uh, it has been met with great positivity, the more context and nuance I've used, even when I challenge systems and I, I, I try to understand the oppressor. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to sympathize with them, but sometimes I think it's important for us to also treat the cause, not just the symptom. So sometimes, you know, for example, I I will not just attack men all the time in my feminism. I will try to, you know, I made a speech, a 9-minute speech uh 2 years ago that got a very interesting reaction with a lot of support but also a lot of pushback because I was talking about the systems that make men as toxic as they can be sometimes and the porn culture and uh 
are bad role models and bad parenting and all the different ways in which men get the same misinformation about the patriarchy as we do and it just comes out in two different ways and so my speaking remotely empathetically about men made some people think I'm anti-women and so I think that's mm. that's where sometimes there can be a slight challenge but generally it's met with positivity things with I way that I've learned are just how amazing Gen Z are are just how incredible our our youth is and how much they care, how active they are, the fact that they actually sign the petitions, they actually phone the numbers, they turn up on the street and they march. And I'm so blown away by the fact that, A, for the first time, we know how many people are upset. And I'm so blown away by the fact that my community in particular, they never want me to post stuff about celebrities. They, they aren't interested. If I post something with a celebrity, the, the engagement is very low. And yet when I post about uh, sort of uh, a young activist from Yemen or Sudan or somewhere else in the world uh, who's got 1,500 followers on Instagram, that's when we get so much engagement and suddenly they start flocking towards those people. So I think I think their disinterest in celebrity is one of the coolest things I've seen. And the fact that they are just not into the same vacuous shit that other generations were poisoned into thinking was important. They had it right even before this pandemic they knew that it was bullshit and they they really, really passionately care and they make effective change. I think the kids are going to save us. Yeah, I think so too. I really, really do. They're so smart and brave and just the things that I am feeling comfortable saying as an almost 36-year-old, they're mm-hmm. saying at 14. Yeah. And I'm like, damn, you know, yeah. it's amazing. Um, they're so educated. I wish we'd grown up. I wish, I, I do and I don't wish we'd grown up with social media. Do you ever feel this way mm. where... They are so well-versed and so emotionally intelligent because they've grown up with access to all this information that we didn't grow up with. We grew up with bullshit history books that were, you know, <laughs> yeah. that didn't tell us any of the truth, uh, really. And they grew up with just a really wide spectrum of information. But at the same time, I think they've been exposed to a lot of really dangerous shit very young especially with yeah, like body image and stuff. So I, mm-hmm. I don't know. How do you feel? Do you feel like you would have liked to have grown up? I wouldn't have liked it. Info? I think I already had such low self-esteem and mm. hated myself so much that I think the information overload, it would have just made me feel worse about myself yeah. and maybe even paralyzed to a degree where I'm like, I don't even know how to begin to figure out who I am and what I want and what I believe because there's Twitter and face, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok all pumping 24 hours of just information every day. So I, yeah, I'm kind of glad I am pre-social meds and I can dip in and dip out and feel okay in my skin doing that. I feel mixed about it. I feel like I would have liked to have seen more about feminism. I would have, I would have come out before I was like 30. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, uh, I would have been able to feel as though there was a a South Asian queer community that I could have been a part of. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, with my eating disorder, at least I used to go out and have to spend $4 on the magazine. That would make me feel like shit about myself, whereas now it finds you. It's like that um, John Krasinski, Emily Blunt movie. What's it called? A Quiet Place? Yes. Oh. Yeah, it's like it hunts you. Yeah, it Quiet finds Place. You. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it comes <laughs> after you and finds you and hunts you down <laughs> wherever you are. And so, you know, you're never safe if you have a phone mm-hmm. in your hand. So, I, yeah, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult one, but I'm just still so, so impressed with them. And I feel regretful that other generations before, including mine, didn't do enough 
yeah. to uh, <laughs> take some work off their plate. But it's exciting. Yeah. This year has been mm-hmm. devastating and scary, mm-hmm. but it's also been, I don't know, how do you, I don't know, I want to know exactly, especially from you, how you feel this year. Like there is a feeling of actual movement rather than moment. Yeah, feel I that? feel hopeful. I feel hopeful. I feel like people whose voices have been sort of snuffed out, they're able mm-hmm. to breathe and sort of get out the work and the information, the content that they want to get out. But I also feel there is an equal sort of uptick in performative allyship and mm-hmm. people being like, so me, like I, I was telling my boyfriend, I was like, if I see one more white person hold up the white fragility book. Yeah. And I'm like, what is the date on that receipt? Is it June 6th? Because I'm fucking, you know what I mean? It's just like, I did the work because I read this one book by this one white person in terms of, and that means I've done everything I need to do instead of like, no, this is a day-to-day thing. Like, who are you working with? Um, What are you learning in school? What, just like every facet of your life needs to change to be more inclusive, to be less racist, to be less homophobic, transphobic, less classist, less elitist, all that stuff. And I think right now people are just sort of going like, well, I read two books or I reposted. So that means I've done everything that I can do. And I think that that feels good. (laughs) Yeah. Like that feels good to post like something cute on Instagram, but it's not... It's not enough. It's not even the beginning of what people should be doing. I agree. And I feel like some people look at activists who are at the forefront, like people like Rachel Cargill or mm-hmm. Tarana Burke, et cetera. And they're just like, well, you know, they have big platforms and they've been doing lifelong work. And so therefore they have the setup to be an activist. You know, I'm just me and I only have a thousand followers. It's like, we can all make a difference. Just if every single person in the world educated their circle, the people around mm-hmm. them, their communities, not just showing that they've personally done the, le- done the work, but actively making sure that others around them do that same work, then the world would be a completely different place. This like yeah. good vibes only shit is really scary. <laughs> I posted publicly yeah. on Instagram and I've saved it on my Instagram highlights, um, an argument I had with a woman who thought that it was wrong for me to call out JK Rowling publicly. And she was just like, this calling out that you do is a really negative thing. And, you know, I, I think we should put more good vibes out into the world. And I'm like, good vibes doesn't what end What good vibes is she putting out? Yeah. Ugh. I'm so fucking sick of that as well. I think that's something that's really frustrating is people criticizing those who call out systems of injustice and other people being afraid to call out injustice because they don't mm-hmm. want to seem negative. They want to seem good vibes. They want to be a positive mm-hmm. person. So like, you're not positive. You're a fucking coward. And you're lazy and complicit and problematic in your silence Mm. and people just don't realize that and so I think we're going to make mistakes we're going to get messy and you know while I think it's important for us to educate ourselves we also have to understand that we can't wait until we have all of the answers about everything before we step in and try and help I think that that's a really important thing to remember is that not be so afraid of being called out that you don't try. Mm. We're going to have to get in, jump in now, wherever we are in life, get messy, make the mistakes, understand that we will be called out for those mistakes. We will have to edit ourselves and then keep going. Because if we wait until everyone is completely updated on society and everyone is entirely educated and has a full grasp grasp of all different communities before they actually try to help, we're never going to make any progress. So whoever you are, just accept that criticism and failure isn't a death sentence. It's not a tattoo. Like Ibram Kendi talks about this. He's like, being called a racist 
being accused of racism isn't a tattoo. It's not an identity. It's, it's a diagnosis. And I think mm. that that's ge- a genius way of looking at it is that you have been diagnosed with this. This is what you need to do to change it. And then you can carry on and live. And I think that that's what I wish more people would understand is the fact that if you are being called out for being problematic, it's not a tattoo. It's just a diagnosis. Fucking fix it. This is me dropping my imaginary <laughs> mic. <laughs> but I've learned this from making all of the mistakes and getting criticized constantly. I mean, fucking hell, it feels like I'm being like, dragged by my hair <laughs> uh, so much of the time. Every time I speak, it feels like it happens sometimes. But I'm so much more grateful for it than I am resentful mm-hmm. when it's based on truth. When someone's mm-hmm. just spread a bullshit lie about me, like the Munchausen's rumor or this and the other, like that's that's really upsetting to get piled onto over something that you haven't actually done. But yeah. when you've made a mistake, I'm I I am so much better for being told I'm a fucking idiot <laughs> than I would be had no one corrected me. I wouldn't have grown at all, and I'd be a really embarrassing person. I still am an embarrassing person, but you know what I mean. I'd be worse. Okay, that's a perfect segue um, (laughs) to my favorite part of the show, the advice questions from listeners. By the way, am I your Roz? Yes, you can be my Roz. (laughs) I've always wanted to be your Roz. (laughs) Although I'm really Niles. Go on. (laughs) You could be both. You're a hybrid, you know? Okay, Niles, Yeah. Um, when I told people that you're going to be on the show, I got so many questions in. Um, okay. So we have about maybe three to five that we'll try and get through. Uh, you um, have all my time in the world. I don't have anything <laughs> to do straight after this. So I can I can do this all fucking day, Phoebe. <laughs> oh, great. Um, and people were just really excited to hear from you because I think that you're so wise and you're so funny and you're so you encourage people to be kinder to themselves and forgive themselves a little bit. So I'm going to read the first question. These questions, they got meat to them. Damn. They want to hear from you. And if I have anything, I'll chime in. But I think people really want to hear from you. So I'll read the first question from Katie, who lives in Buffalo, New York. I've struggled with my weight my whole life. I've been overweight all of my life apart for three to four of those years when I was in my late 20s, early 30s. I struggle mostly with loving myself as I am in whatever shape or form I currently am. I recently heard about the idea of working towards body neutrality instead of body positivity, as body positivity is too far to reach towards, which is exactly the issue I have. But I've been feeling even being neutral about my body is difficult. I practice gratitude and I'm grateful for the health that I have, for being alive, for the ways my body does properly function and all that it does for me. But that does not help much in getting me to achieve a neutral feeling about my body. I feel overwhelmingly negative about it. But getting to neutral is way harder than I think I realized. Any advice on how to loosen the grips of those deep-seated feelings of dislike, contempt, embarrassment, and shame to start to achieve more love and appreciation for your roles and imperfections? Oh, so, Katie. Katie, oh. I feel you. I feel yeah. you. I feel like we both feel her. That was definitely mm-hmm. us once upon a time. Um Okay, so you can't change your mind easily without changing your environment. And I think that that's something for people to really understand, which is that look at your little U2 cup. You're so hilarious. (laughs) I was like trying, I was like trying to sneak it in while you're (laughs) You brilliant freak. (laughs) Um, 
Okay, so what, sorry, uh, I got so distracted by your U2 cup. Um, okay, so you can't change your mind without, easy, well, you can't, you can't change your mind easily without changing your environment, right? So you have mm. to also look at who are you following online? What are you seeing on social media? Have you curated your space to be devoid of this vanity and weight loss obsession? Because I think we feel as though we have to follow pop culture in order to remain in tune with the zeitgeist. We don't. The, the news will find you some way or the other. I don't follow almost any models and actresses or people who encourage me to think about my own body in comparison to theirs. Mm. I just try to avoid it at all costs, or at least if I am already following them, they are muted. <laughs> I don't really yeah. see any of their content <laughs> because I need to protect my little mm. anorexic brain from looking at those images. I think making sure that you are staying away from things that trigger that thought process so for example I don't really use a long a long mirror I don't use a full mm. length mirror so if I have actual shit on my trousers I won't know until someone tells me I <laughs> I choose to just look at a kind of like tits up mirror or I use a little hand mirror to do my makeup uh mm. because I get triggered by the mirror um and mostly I have really really made an effort to create boundaries for myself emotionally when it comes to the people I'm around. So if they speak to me in a way that I find triggering about my body, either because they speak about themselves in a triggering way, or they speak to me about my body, I give them one opportunity to stop. I correct them Mm. and say that this is my need for my mental health for you to stop speaking like this around me or to me. And if they continue to, then I cut them off until they respect me and so I think knowing that you have reserved the right to protect your mind you know we're taught self-defense of the body but we're not taught self-defense of the mind and that is massively in curating your entire environment environment online and offline so just de- the only detox you need to go on is a, is the one of toxic people yeah and one thing that helped me in terms of body neutrality is sort of because I used to be really down on my body and be like, mm-hmm. I, I don't look like Tyra Banks. I'm not curvy. Like, no, yeah. like I was actually a friend, air quotes, told me in college uh, because I was so like skinny and square. Like she was like, you know, you're really only going to attract like gay men who don't know they're gay yet because you look like a boy. And it's just so ignorant Damn. and so, yeah. And it was like, how how is this helping? But one of the things to sort of overcome sort of hearing those kind of toxic things and awful things is that I take like different body parts and will associate it with like a positive memory. So like when I look at my hands, for instance, they remind me of Hand my drops. brothers. Right. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's different. <laughs> that's a different thing. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was just me, I guess. No. <laughs> A good old HJ, baby. (laughs) Look at my wrists. I feel really proud. All the pleasure from other people. All the torque you can get flowing through that wrist of yours. No, my ass is, yeah, my ass is useless. I can do it with my hands. (laughs) No, but I'll see, like, I look at my hands, I think of my brother. Or if I look at my legs, I go, oh, I went on this hike for the very first time and I was like able to do a hike when I didn't think that I could physically do it. So like associating with a positive memory, a person or a thing that I have achieved sort of helped me see my body as not what the patriarchy yeah. tells me. But also I do think my hand job game is good. Um, I Just have putting no it doubt. out there. I have no <laughs> doubt. Uh, I, um, I, I think also 
look, it is hard to achieve body neutrality and gratitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, because you are being, you're so programmed to hate these things. But I think it's mm-hmm. really helpful just to remember the system that is built to make you think these things to really investigate the diet and detox industry and how the fashion industry works the fact that the fashion industry the media industry hollywood is funded by the weight loss industry in so many instances how many weight loss adverts do you see in any given magazine i don't know if a lot of industries would exist without look at social media platforms they sell the fasting apps the detox apps every 15 seconds i think or something on tiktok i was told the algorithm sends you another diet ad so just think about the fact that you are it is a deliberate tool of patriarchal oppression deliberately there to distract you and to make money off you because you are 80 like you are part of the group that is 80 percent of the market really remember Mm. that this is a full-on fucking conspiracy Mm -hmm. it's a conspiracy and a and a tactic to keep us behind as the lesser gender another mic drop I hope that helps. It's just, like I said, power, I think, is knowledge is power, truly. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, So our next question is from Kat, who lives in Maine. I've become more comfortable in the past few years as a fat person standing up for casual fat phobia in my personal life among friends and families and discussing how I experience the world as someone in a larger body. Mm -hmm. However, I still feel intimidated and uncomfortable addressing these issues in a work setting. Mm. When coworkers make comments that are fat phobic, talk about diets, and generally promote a worldview that doesn't embrace health at every size. I know I should probably say something, but I worry how it will be perceived and that their discomfort will affect our work. What should I do? Oh, man, that's tough. That's, that's a tough. tough one. That's really tough because if your survival depends on a job, I also understand that some places are so scary for you to sort of mm-hmm. speak up and speak out and, you know, carry on your crusade I wouldn't beat yourself up for starters about it if you don't feel like you are in a safe enough environment to speak out about something and you don't have a backup plan I'm definitely not suggesting that you should ever regardless of the circumstances start advocating but I would say that there are ways to communicate with people that don't have to be scary I'm really interested in Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication which encourages you to speak in a way that will make someone empathize with you rather than put their defense up. So rather than Mm. saying, you're doing this, you did that, you've committed this crime, it's not an actual crime. I'm just saying, I'm just using an example. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, in that case, do whatever you want. Um, But, you know, you've you've made me do this. You're saying, I feel like this when you talk like that. Mm. And it immediately pulls someone into how you feel rather than what they feel about what you've just accused them of. So that makes sense and it's irritating to pussyfoot around harmful people but sometimes if you feel as though it's a very if you if you feel as though you are walking on thin ice then i personally subscribe to that method of communication you know like for example me in this industry i was always one of the only women on set on a set of 200 people in order to you know being pressured by a writing room of all men uh, to say things that I felt were demeaning and belittled my intellect. And it was I was so outnumbered. I, there was no information about how to go to HR. I was ignored a lot of the time on previous TV shows I'd worked on. And I had to advocate for myself gently. Otherwise, I would just be replaced, re- replaced because women are seen as so replaceable. Yeah. 
And so I would just say that there are ways of investigating language like nonviolent communication, which I really think everyone in all walks of life, especially people in romantic relationships, should investigate. Um, but that could be an option for you. But don't risk your f- food and rent money. Great. I love that. Uh, oh, OK. So this question I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a great answer. You're doing you. You should have a device show. <laughs> I know you're doing a lot of that. things. I've still got a lot to learn. Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Okay, so this is from Sean in Bristol, Connecticut. I teach fifth grade and I want to teach my students to have a positive self-image and love themselves as they navigate adolescence. Many come to me with negative thoughts about themselves already, and I haven't found a way to meaningfully try to turn that around in a school setting. How can I teach my students the value of self-love when they are faced with so many personal, social, and academic pressures on a daily basis? Holy hell, Sean. So again, even with very young people, if they're old enough to start hating on their bodies, they are old enough to understand systems, right? I think Mm. educating them about the use of Photoshop is the number one thing you can do that is helpful for young people who are looking at toxic shit online. Take an image and show them truly in real time how fast you can edit an image and make yourself look like a completely different person. That illusion in itself, once I started to show all of my pictures unphotoshopped in all magazines and magazine covers and started to call out photoshopping and and actively I would photoshop myself live on screen and then post that video so people could see how much longer I could make my legs look and how much thinner I could be and how much clearer my skin could look, my tits could get bigger. It really started to trigger something in people's minds to realize oh my god yes everything I'm seeing is fake and once that people started to see my arm hair or even like my skin discoloration on my face sometimes or my stretch marks all the way across my tits people were like oh I've never seen this before like in the good place a makeup artist tried to cover up my stretch marks on my tits once and I was like no you can't do that I like yeah. my stretch marks my tits. they're a part of me and I don't want to hide them and you're telling me that there's something wrong with me by trying to put makeup over them uh, or once I've had a makeup artist, in fact, many times, I don't know if you get this all the time, but people just draw the two thinning lines on your nose, the contour without yep. fucking asking you, mm-hmm. which I think is so racially insensitive that yep. I can't even begin to like to, to not ask someone before you change their, try to change their feature to look more Eurocentric it makes me so upset that it makes me want to fucking cry in the chair because yeah. of how many times I thought I needed a nose job when I was little because of that imagery. Um, my point being, what is my point? My point is that you have to show them exactly all of the tricks that are at play that make them see these images that make them hate themselves and show them how much of it is nonsense. Show them a picture of a real person, what real pores look like, what stretch marks, what wrinkles look like. Show them the fact that we see pictures of men um, unphotoshopped in high definition where we increase their wrinkles and where they're allowed to have a bit of a gut and they just wear baggy clothes versus a picture of a woman of the same age. Let's say the difference between Josh Brolin, always shot in HD, love his wrinkles, love his gray hairs. And mm-hmm. we make someone like Nicole Kidman look like an emoji. Airbrush her to within an inch of her life. Like show them that difference. Show them how yeah. much we shame in particular women into their appearance. Teach them about uh, the fact that these people have surgeons and pl- and private chefs and personal trainers and uh, all kinds of different things at their disposal and that these adverts are fake. Just give them the information. That's all they need is if they can understand the system at least, then they can make their own decision. Like kids are smart. 
but they don't know the lies they're being told. If you just explain that to them, I think that would be the first step in really debunking the myths and then make sure that you are consistently showing them varied types of bodies and looks and people from different backgrounds and celebrate those people and show those people celebrating themselves. Happy pictures of disabled people, fat people, people from different ethnic backgrounds, visibly queer people, trans people, etc. Show them all these different types of people thriving. That is also, I think, a really big part of changing people's perceptions. I mean, if that was in school, like every child would be so different. If they just saw that in middle school or whatever, like they would just be so empowered and feel happier about themselves at a time when you're a teenager, you already feel terrible. I mean, you we're know? now at the highest, statistically, the highest numbers of teen cosmetic surgery, teen anxieties mm-hmm. and suicidal uh, attempts, teen self-harm, mm-hmm. teen eating disorders, and teen mental health issues. Kids are not okay. Like, they're not. They're not coping well with this. And schools and parents don't even know what these kids are looking at. I, I really want to create a syllabus for all schools around the world to teach parents and teachers how to explain the internet to kids. Because this is the first generation ever where children are ahead of adults in what they're seeing. Adults are catching up with kids. That's never happened before. Throughout history, it was always a parent or an adult who would show a child how to do Mm -hmm. something. Now they are way ahead. So no one is even tracking what they're looking at. And so if you can't control what they're seeing, you can control what they understand about it. This is the same with porn. Explain porn to kids. Don't just make it an awkward or taboo subject that you don't know enough about. And then they go and figure it out for themselves and create their own uh, you know, opinion based on only lies. I think yeah. it's really important to just educate. Me too. Oh, that was such a beautiful answer. Okay, so Jamila, we have one last question. This okay. is from Brianna in San Francisco, California. Mm-hmm. She writes, hey, queens, Jamila and Phoebe, you inspire me daily. So thanks for all you do. My question is about the sexualization of the black female body. Yes. And overcoming that. I'm half black, half white, meaning I have some pretty magical meaning. Okay. Why is it always on the last question that my mouth is like, peace the fuck out, bitch. I couldn't string a sentence together for (laughs) half an hour of this (laughs) podcast. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Keep going. (laughs) Okay. Um, I'm half black, half white, meaning I have some pretty magical curves, smiley face. Recently, I've become insanely frustrated with the clothing options available for my shape. It seems that anything made for an hourglass shape is hypersexualized. Like the clothing provider pre- assumes that if you have tits and ass, you must want to constantly be showing them off. Do you have any advice on how women of color can counteract this or where we should be shopping, etc.? I have Oof. so much to say about that because I do think that's where a lot of my low self-esteem came from is that I did not look like the video girls. Mm-hmm that I saw growing up. And so I was like, I am not, A, I'm not a pretty woman because I'm not white, and B, I'm not a pretty black woman because I don't have tits and ass. And so I definitely feel like there is so much hypersexualization that happens to black women already. Um, And it starts when they're like 12, 13, and just sort of starting to even understand what their body is going through in terms of Mm -hmm. puberty. And they are seeing as sexualized beings, you know, like I think in general, like black people, black kids are seen not as children, right? So they're seen as 
scary adults or sexually active way before mm-hmm. they actually well, states are. states all the and way so, back to the beginning of mm-hmm. slavery. So, yeah. Exactly. And so I think with something like this, I have found in terms of shopping, like, I think you have to just go, I'm not going to shop at your store if all you're going to do is create clothing and push out this imagery imagery of me just being like this hot mama. Um, and so sometimes, yeah, that does limit what you do and where you can shop. But, you know, I like a flowy pant, so I'll shop at like some hippie dippy line or... Mm-hmm. If I want to wear something baggy, like sometimes I'll get like a men's shirt or men pants. And I guess I don't even want to say like men's shirt or whatever, because it's just it's all clothing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I try and find things where that are baggier or, you know, the mom jeans or those sorts of things to just sort of counteract that. Like you can go to vintage shops, I think, are a great resource if you want to find things that are not just all having your tits out. Um Fun hand-me-downs. I love a good hand-me-down from a friend who's like, I don't need this anymore. From a guy friend who's like, this shirt, I don't care about it anymore, then I'll wear it. So I think there are ways that you can sort of take back and not feel like you have to dress like Cardi B because you don't. And she's great. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But that is not, that her style of dress is just not for everyone. So I think you just have to pick and choose the designers that are going to support the way that you want to look and feel about yourself. A hundred percent. I think anything that celebrates your curves is positive. I just think that we are all Mm -hmm. entitled to choose. So I have a 32 32 E cup bosom, right? Massive fucking tits. No one has really known, really until I was on Legendary after uh, Meg Thee Stallion (laughs) and Leomi, but kept on pushing me to just one time, just get them out. (laughs) (laughs) because they felt like I had shame around my boobs and they were just like you're not like you don't have to show them all the time but you are you are not allowed to be shamed about what you've been given by God so I I ventured out to to get my boobs out in the biggest way I've ever done before and it was uh it was very shocking to a lot of people because I think I have deliberately for a similar reason and I, you know, it doesn't have the same racial history as black women, especially Mm -hmm. in America do, but I have like a very hourglass shape, not to brag. Um, No, but I (laughs) I do. And and I have a very dark history with sexual assault. And so that has made me feel very, very strange about my curves and very conflicted about when I do and don't show them. And so I have to be very coaxed into showing off my figure um and so what I've chosen to do because it just makes me feel more comfortable is wear a lot of baggy suits and I've been kind Mm. of like I guess that's a big part of my aesthetic is baggy I love I fucking love a power suit on a woman love it I wear big baggy Mm -hmm. t-shirts like the one that I'm wearing now everything I buy is xxl and it just makes me just feel more comfortable if you are not comfortable with the way that those clothes make you feel or the attention that they may get you, whether that's positive or negative and creepy, then feel free to go baggy. And I do buy from sort of more, you know, like I just bought a suit from Rick Owens, who is a very gender neutral designer Mm -hmm. who I really love and was one of the first ever gender neutral designers. And so I'm trying to find, you know, I feel like the new crop of designers, especially the ones who are from ethnic minorities, ethnic backgrounds, like are the more creative ones. Christopher John Rogers mm-hmm. loves mm-hmm. a tent, loves a gorgeous, colorful tent. So I love Christopher John Rogers. And um, I work with Law Roach, who is just a master 
at making something stylish that doesn't have to force you into a certain shape. So I would go baggy. I would go, I would feel free to go into what is typically menswear or just try to find more and more gender, gender queer outlets. That's where I'm getting my clothes from. Never be afraid of an XXL. I love baggy. I live for baggy. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jamila, thank you for your answers. I think that's going to be helpful advice for everyone listening. Um, and thank you for doing the show today. You are, I think, a bright, wonderful light in this world. And I know that as a woman of color, it is very difficult to constantly put yourself out there and make your voice heard because the world likes to keep us silent. So I really thank you and applaud you for just being like, I'm going to keep speaking out. I'm going to keep making mistakes and I'm not going to let that define me because what matters more is that everyone feels good about themselves. And I want to thank you for all the work you do, not just for how much you make people laugh, but for how much integrity you have and have had throughout your entire career, how honest you are with your fan base and also for sticking by me through all of my public mistakes. I really appreciate that because some people are too afraid of their public image or they won't give someone a second chance. And they don't believe in growth. And I really appreciate you for still being my friend, not just privately, but also publicly through I'm my a true growth. Blue friend. I'm a true blue friend. Yeah, same. And so I, I appreciate that in you. And I love you for it. And uh, continue to just be the funniest person on the internet, please. <laughs> oh, thank you. I love you so much. And is, before I let you go, is there anything that you want to plug? Oh, well, uh, Yes. Okay. Two things. I have a YouTube channel that is a, an education platform. So if you are someone who's like, I don't know anything about any activism and I want to learn, but I don't want to be called out for it. You can come and watch me learn uh, from great <laughs> activists on the YouTube channel. It's purely for education about all the different types of groups and, and marginalized people in the world. And it's very, very, it's a very broad spectrum of people and experts and doctors and stuff. So I think that's helpful if you are someone who wants to get into activism, doesn't know where to start. Second of all, it's my new podcast called I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, where I have conversations about all different types of things that are mental health, activism and shame. And so I have a very wide variety of guests and uh, Phoebe is going to be one of them. Whoop, 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 whoop. I'm excited. Um, all right. Well, this has been fantastic. I adore you. And, Likewise. you know, I'll send you a, a gif in like 10 minutes of Bono because why not? <laughs> I let, <laughs> see, I, I let Bono do a takeover on my Instagram for you. Like, this will get me brownie points with Phoebe because she'll know that I'm giving her her side piece, Bono, uh, <laughs> access to my platform. <laughs> <laughs> I was so I happy love that he's your side chick. I love it so much. And you're in an so open relationship with Bake Off and Bono. Ah, uh, Bake Off wasn't it such a great episode. I think even now, like, I, because I've spent so much time in America, when I hear British people talk, I listen more. <laughs> Really? I what think, is that? Is, I don't know. Do you not like American? I mean, our American accents are mostly like gutter garbage. Well, I think because of everything that's been going on in the media recently that yeah. you see you see and hear a lot of the uh, American people who are swinging more right in their politics. Mm. And for me, I immediately switch off. Mm. Whatever they're saying, I just switch off straight away. Dang. What about me when I talk? 50-50. Oh!
<laughs> because we're an indie podcast, we can't afford sound effects. Oh, so you're doing them now? Yeah. I mean... Was that good? I'll clip it and I'll keep <laughs> reusing that. <laughs> anyway, you guys, Jamila Jamil is fantastic. If you want to listen to more of her conversations that she does with other people, subscribe to I Way with Jamila Jamil wherever you get your podcasts. Okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and finally best of luck to the good place they i think are up for a buttload of emmys buttload a buttload good for them yeah so i'm really excited i hope they get to take home some gold statuettes <laughs> um and as i've talked about every episode this is an indie podcast meaning i'm taking no ad dollars honey i know <laughs> you're talking to me then right <laughs> Because I felt I felt like during these times, I didn't want to be like, oh, my God, blue apes, give me some money so I can talk <laughs> about your rotisserie chickens. Like, that felt ignorant. Yeah, it feels wrong to ask for money now when a lot more people need it. Yeah, so what I want to do is this is a self-funded podcast. You and me, we put every penny in. And instead of, like, taking ad dollars from people, what I want to do is advertise something. These these the, the companies that I'm advertising didn't ask me to do this. It's just, like, I love them so much. So each episode, I'm doing black-owned business. Um... And today, this is probably like one of my favorite companies like ever. They're called the 125th Collection. They are a candle company. Bake Off loves their candles. Oh, I do. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got, I think, three in this room right now. Yes, yeah. we do. They're so amazing. Um, and I just love them so much. And especially during these times when everyone's feeling a little down, like sometimes lighting a candle while you do work, job hunt, you know, watch TV, read mm -hmm. a book. It's just like such a great way to treat yourself. So go to their Instagram. It's the 125 collection and their luxury vegan soy, you guys. It's even Ooh. better. Okay. Support black people. Was that aggressive? A little bit, but I think you got your message across. Yes. So that's their Instagram handle, and their website is the125collection.com. It's so great. They've been featured in Allure magazine, you hoes. <laughs> Again, very aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> I think companies are going to be like, can you can not? You, yeah, can you tone it down <laughs> a little bit? Uh, thanks for the advertisement, but we're getting a lot of complaints. Okay, let me do a kinder version. If everyone could go to the 125 Collection Instagram page, that would be great. ASMR. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Time for credits! Hosted by Phoebe Robinson. Produced by Phoebe Robinson, British Bake Off. Edited by British Bake Off. Theme song by Gavin Turk. And oh, wait, that's it. That, that is it. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>